Um, it's just a really uh, handy outline for the series that I think will help because you know, Exodus is about travelling, it's got geography in it. Uh, I think it will help you keep track of the series and where things are, how the story fits together. I'm going to pray for us. Um, pray for me. I'm a bit tired today. It's been a hard week. Uh, where you're at, I know some of you are tired, some of you have sick families, all sorts of stuff. Let's pray that we'll be attentive to God's word today. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us your word so that we can know you. Uh, sometimes we aren't real prepared to hear word uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, today I want to pray that you'd help us to be attentive to your word, that you'd help us uh, to concentrate and overcome whatever issues might stop us reading it. Pray that you'd help us to focus and overcome tiredness and sickness and whatever else is uh, in the way today. Uh, we pray that we be changed by knowing you better through your Bible. Amen. Amen. Um, so, let's see if we get this PowerPoint to work today. We're doing a series, the second week of our series on the book of Exodus. Uh, I just want to ask you a question today. Uh, so when you hear the word God, I want you to think for a sec. What do you think of when you hear the word God? Without repeating the word God. <laughs> what ideas, what experiences, what labels, what events, what, what do you think of when you hear the word God? What characteristics? Powerful. Powerful. Creator. Creator. Judge. Judge. Sorry? Or caring. Or caring. These are very Christian ideas, Kyle. I fancy that. Um, <laughs> so, look, basically everybody's got in their head what I'd like to call... The God box, and that atheist's word shouldn't be there yet. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Ignore the atheist's word. Um, imagine there's a box in your head, right? It's called the God box. It's your ideas about who God is. Uh, it's a whole collection of things. Uh, everybody has that, um, even, even atheists. I just want you to think for a sec. So you just heard some very Christian ones. Uh, there's lots more. Um, what ideas do you think atheists have in their head when they hear God? Uh, have you talked to atheists? Have you thought about this? Sorry? Fairy tale. Fairy tale, yep. So there's the idea, big, big idea. So the concept they've got in their head is that that doesn't exist. What, what do they think of as God? Have you, have you talked to any people who say, I, I'm really against God? What, what do they think of as God? A magic old man in the sky. Magic old man in the sky, yep. Dictator. Dictator, yep. Someone who watches. Someone who watches, yep. Yeah. Um, all sorts of things. I've, I've noticed uh, talking to some atheists and reading articles written by the new atheists, the uh, trendy... Uh, highbrow atheists these days, um, they think God is every religious idea I don't like. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, I'm serious about that, they go, religion is wrong, well, the problem with everything, God is the problem with everything, which is an absolutely meaningless thing to say. It's like if I said to you, politics is what's wrong with the world. Um, so I just summed up in one sentence, um, the Labour Party, Adolf Hitler, and the people who abolished slavery in one word, and said it's bad. Like, it's not even a meaningful conversation. Which God, which religion are you talking about? It, it's... It, Anyway, every, every religious idea I don't like. So look at this box, they just throw a lot of stuff into it. Um, there was a survey I looked at, a, a book actually called Soul Searching, that uh, interviewed religious teenagers in America, about 3,000 of them, uh, and it tried to, uh, there were people from different religions, the, these teenagers, and the question was, um, what are the religious beliefs these teens are inheriting from their parents? What do they really believe? And they identified as Muslims and Jews and Christians, um, but they all believe the same thing. Um, here's what the researchers called it. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Isn't that an awesome term? I'll explain it. Uh, it's, it's not what the teenagers said. <laughs> <laughs> the researchers have kind of pulled all the research together and say they all basically believe the same thing. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So they believe moralism. Um, all religions teach you to be good. 
and good people go to heaven. Simple. No, no need for a savior. It's just all, all religions basically teach you to be good, it's all the same stuff, and people who are good go to heaven when they die. Um, it's therapeutic, because basically all of them thought the goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. And God exists to help me make that happen. Basically, that's what God's job is, to help me be happy. And so it feels good that it's right and God approves of it and he's happy with it. And it's deism. Deism is a technical, it's a philosophical word. Um, it's, it's basically talking about people who believe that God is completely removed from the universe. He doesn't actually um, intervene in creation at all. He doesn't have anything to do with human life, like actively. He just sort of stands back and watches. Um, they don't quite mean that by it. What they mean is, well, God doesn't get involved in creation uh, unless I need him. And so I ignore God my whole life, and if I have trouble, I can go to God and talk about my trouble. And so what they've got in their box is moralistic, therapeutic deism, and it doesn't matter what label they've got. All these teenagers basically have the same idea. They're inheriting nothing very specific about their religion and about what their scriptures teach. Problem is, I was talking to somebody the other day, it's probably for I want, I was talking to somebody the other day, and we're, uh, uh, Friday, and they, they were talking about the good things that are in Buddhism, and they want to identify as a Christian, they just grab stuff, throw it in my God box, I, I like this idea, I'll chuck out stuff that I don't like out of the God box in my head, and I'll invent my religion, although I won't admit to it. And, yeah, it's pretty, pretty scary when you think about actually following things. <coughs> just have a think for a sec. What's in your God box? What's in the God box do you think of your kids? What's in the God box of your neighbours? Lots of different things. Probably a scary amount of different things. Probably a lot of them moralistic therapeutic days. Um, you can write a song about that and make a rhyme. It works really well. Um, I didn't try it, I'm just guessing. Um, <laughs> you know what all those things have in common? All of them have in common? Uh, all of them have in common the confidence that human beings can figure out God. Figure out God. I'll use my brain and my intelligence to chuck stuff out, beliefs about God that I don't like, and I'll throw stuff in the box that I do like, and I'll invent my God box, a God box of my own making, invent a God of my own making. Well, even the atheists have confidence that if there is a God, we can figure him out using our brains. Uh, whereas the Bible insists only God can introduce God. And so the question that this confronts us as Christians is, who have a Bible, who have a God that introduces himself to us, is... Is stuff sneaking into the God box that shouldn't be there, that isn't legit? Is there stuff in there that should be chucked out? Are there things that God said about himself that we're just refusing to put in the God box? That we're, we're actually not building an accurate picture of God because at the end of the day, uh, I think I know best and I don't think God's the one who's the most competent to introduce himself. Uh, it's a significant problem and it, it never goes away uh, because being a Christian always means coming back to God's word, learning more, filling your God box with actually knowing him and removing the junk that collects there over time. It's a really good thing to think about in the book of Exodus, because in the book of Exodus, God introduces himself to Israel, a bunch of people who don't really know him yet. Um, so it goes through really fundamental, basic stuff, and so it's like a back-to-basics course in a lot of ways. But I want you to think about um, Israel's neighbours for a second. Um, they were very different to your neighbours. Um, the gods they had in their god box, so the Moabites, everybody had the territorial gods. The Moabites had Chemosh. Uh, the Ammonites had Moloch. You don't want to know about Moloch. Hmm. The Edomites... Kosh, I've never heard of Kosh before, but it's an interesting name. Um, the Syrians had Hadad, you've probably heard of Hadad as Baal. Uh, Baal appears through the Old Testament, it's, uh, yeah, not good. People go into idolatry and, and worship Baal at various times. Um, they all believe different gods. 
Um, but the thing they believed in common about the gods, so they've got an idol for it. So you see the idol, you sort of know who God is, what he looks like. So they define him like that. But also, they're very territorial gods. And so if you go into Kosh's territory over at Eden, uh, you'd better do a sacrifice to Kosh, otherwise things might not go well for you. And if you go into battle, the battle isn't just your army versus the opposing army. The Syrians against the Edomites is a battle between Baal and Kosh to see which god is most powerful. And if God can't protect their territory, well, it looks like a pretty good reason to pay no heed to that particular god because it clearly isn't very powerful. Maybe it's stabbed in the back by another god or something like that. Uh, who knows? Egypt, uh, who we're looking at in this series, was a very, very powerful nation. Uh, one of the most powerful. They thought they were the best. They had lots of gods. There's, I'm not even going to go through it. That's not even all of them. There's tons. Um, the, the, yeah, I'm not going to tell you. That's too, too much time. Um, the Egyptians knew that their country was the best, and therefore they knew that their gods were the best. We have the best gods. Just look at the wealth of Egypt. Look at the power of our armies. Look at our achievements of our culture, the pyramids, the sphinx, all that sort of stuff. The political reach we have in our country is far beyond us. Egypt is the greatest, and our gods are the greatest. We're better than all the other gods. Um, and that's what's in their God box. Now we come into the book of Exodus and we meet the people of Israel whose God must be pretty pathetic because uh, they are in slavery to Egypt and clearly their God is the lesser God to the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt must have mastered whoever Israel's God is. Um, it's astonishing though because what we found out last week, yeah, you can see up in the top corner there, they're in slavery. I'd be scared of an Egyptian that size as well, but <laughs> there you go. Um, it's an astonishing thing. Israel grew to such a big size that the Egyptians were actually scared that they, you know, do a riot and take over. There must have been an astonishing amount of growth of, of, of population of the Israelites. And so they started getting scared, and so they decided to cull the population of males, and the order was given to kill baby boys, and it's absolutely appalling, profoundly evil. But what they didn't even realise, Egypt was actually setting their plans against the plans of the God of the universe. They didn't think they were doing that. They thought they were just culling population. Uh, they were actually opposing God's plans. I'm going to find out more about that. Uh, a guy called Moses saved the bird from the purge. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. We heard about this last week. He ends up murdering an Egyptian, flees Egypt, and he's fearful for his life. And he flees to this place called Midian, which is down, down there at the bottom of the map. You can see Moses there with his uh, characteristic stick, his sheep star. Um, down there he gets married, and he starts working for his new father-in-law, Jethro, looking after the sheep. Uh, he's just hiding from death, but God has different plans for him. He's actually preparing Moses to be the shepherd, not just of sheep, but to be the shepherd of God's people down the track. And so we come to chapter 3 of Exodus. Have a look at chapter 3 of Exodus. Pick up the action at verse 1. Uh, God was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So he's over in Midian looking after the sheep. And he led the flock to the other side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. God. Uh, it's a really strange place. If you look at the map, um, he heads over here, takes his sheep over there. It's pretty, not a very nice place. I'm not really sure why he went there, but well, I know why. God ultimately led him there. I don't know what was in Moses' brain, though. It doesn't seem to be a very nice place. But Moses headed over there with the sheep. Um, notice where that is on your map compared to mine. Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, one of the most important events in the Bible is about to happen in a bunch of chapters in a little while when the people of Israel arrive. God is going to meet Israel at that mountain and give them the law. That's down the track. Very important place. That's where he's gone. He doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know it's the mountain of God at this point. I think. He's just looking after sheep. Uh, then we go to verse 2. Then uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that 
Although the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. Yeah, I'd do that too. <laughs> so there's this bush, and it's on fire. Actually, it's not really on fire because it's not burning up. It's, it's weird, and yeah, the scientists in the room want to take a sample of said bush and do some experiments on it. But absolutely basic to the, uh, the Bible's view about creation and God is that he's the Lord of creation. He can manipulate natural phenomena whenever he wants to make a point. He, he gets Moses' attention. Look, a, a bush that burns and it doesn't burn. It's not actually burning up. Um, and you'll notice it's actually the angel of the Lord who appears, though. Very important character. I'm not going to say more than that today. The angel of the Lord, God's special representative, very key figure all through the book of Exodus. We're going to hear all about the angel of the Lord doing massive and scary things and speaking on God's behalf and, and that sort of thing. Uh, come to verse 4. Then the Lord saw that uh, Moses has gone out to look. God called to him within the bush. See how God's calling through the angel to Moses. He says, Moses, Moses. First thing you notice, add this to your God box. God is personal. God is relational. God calls Moses by name. He actually he wants to engage in relationship, in conversation. He's not just a vague God who is sort of a power behind everything that can't speak or something like that. Relational God. Verse 5. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. It's not, not really strong enough. Uh, stop, not another step. Uh, this is... This is a dangerous place. Don't come any closer. Take your shoes off out of respect. Um, Moses gets a glimpse of what Israel is going to find out when they arrive at, at Sinai. It is terrifying for sinners to approach a holy God. Because God hates sin and people sin. And they come into the presence of God who sees that so clearly and responds so righteously. That's going to have to be dealt with. Verse 6. Then he said, I'm the God, and introduces himself to Abraham. I'm the God of your father. As in, like, break down the line, Father, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Just pause there for a minute. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, very important background for Moses, right? Uh, got Good. Israel's family tree. This is Abraham, who had a very big beard in my imagination. So you've got an Abraham box in your head as well. This is what he looks like in my Abraham box in my head. Abraham was a nobody uh, who became a somebody because God spoke to him and gave him outrageous promises. He promised him, look, Abraham, I'm going to give you three things, land, offspring, blessing, you know, lob, do people remember it like that? Well, the promises to Abraham, remember, land, offspring, blessing, lob is a good way to remember it. Um, it's going to give him an inheritance, the land of Canaan, right up there in the top right-hand corner of your map, the land of Canaan, that's going to be your inheritance, your, your offspring's inheritance. You're going to be a massive nation. You're going to be the most powerful, important nation in the world. And you're going to be blessed. As in, everything will go well for you, and you will be the source of blessing to the whole world. God will introduce himself to all of creation through this guy's family. The centre of the world. God amidst Israel. That's, that's the plan. That's God's mission. That's where the mission starts. To, say, to uh, introduce himself to all people through Abraham's descendants. And so then he... Got to know Isaac, his son, and he got to know Jacob, his son, and you notice the style of beard gets shorter each generation for some reason. And he had 12 sons, and 11 of the sons got angry with Joseph because he was the only one in colour, and they ended up in Egypt and got, became slaves. Um, and that's kind of where we're, where we're at. Now, where's God's plan at? Remember, the plan is land, offspring, blessing. Where's the plan at? You're in Egypt. Uh, offspring seems to be going pretty well. There's so many offspring that 
Pharaoh's upset and worried, right? Um, however, Pharaoh set himself up in opposition to God's plan. They're breeding like rabbits, <laughs> offspring of Israel everywhere. What does Pharaoh do to respond? Sets out to kill the offspring of Abraham uh, until they're a manageable size. And at this point, you've got to just notice the whole book is about Pharaoh versus this God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. This God versus Pharaoh and his gods. The whole book is about that, well, half the book at least, is about that, uh, that standoff. Uh, both have claims on Israel. God wants them to be a great nation. Pharaoh wants to subdue them. God wants to make them numerous. Pharaoh wants to exploit that and make them a manageable size. God wants them to take them to the promised land. Obviously, Pharaoh isn't going to go for that. But the biggest question throughout is, who's Israel going to serve? Are they going to be serve as slaves for Pharaoh, or are they going to serve, worship, no God, as sons? And so it's a test of power in the world stage. This is, this is really grand stuff. This is like the world will turn its head and notice the God of Israel because of the mighty things he will do in Egypt, in just crushing the gods of Egypt. Who the heck is that God that he can do that? Verse 7. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out for the, uh, because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Am uh, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That's a terrifying ending. Uh, I have awesome power, I've got this great plan, and you are going to be the instrument of it. You're going to go and tell the leader of this said incredibly powerful country that his slaves are going to be their own better country now. Uh, and Moses says to God what I think I would have said. Moses, verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Egypt and go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this is a sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. This is the destination of where they're coming to. There's the plan. God's presence and power will go with Moses, and Israel will meet God on the mountain. Um, now, we get to one of the most discussed bits of the Old Testament. The amount of ink that's been spilt on this little bit of the Bible over the centuries is absolutely massive. Um, just have a look at verse 13, the next thing Moses uh, says, and how, how God uh, responds to him. Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. So that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? That's a pretty good question. What's the name of this God? There's lots of gods about. What's the name of this God? <coughs> God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Um, you probably haven't looked at this, but like the, the sheer number of different interpretations of what that means out there is absolutely staggering. Uh, I have I probably have four books on the book of Exodus, uh, and they all have at least slightly different versions about what that's supposed to mean. Uh, <laughs> and it, 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 yeah, it's a bit boggling, really. Um, it's it's kind of a short name of his of God's name, Yahweh. Um, Yahweh is the name of God, and this I am who I am is kind of like the name Yahweh um, made bigger. It's kind of an explanation of what that means. Um, this is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. Uh, 
just we're going to do some Hebrew studies today at a very, very basic level. That's exciting. Um, that's what it looks like on the page of the Hebrew text. You're actually supposed to read it from right to left. Uh, and so there's four consonants there. Y, H, W, H. Yahweh. Yeah, it's a vowel to it. Y, H, W, H. You see there's two H's. Um, I can't remember the name of all the letters. Um, some people go really wacky with this stuff. This is, you go to the internet, there's even more interpretations. Um, look, it's a funny code that tells you numbers that, I don't know, falls down a stargate or something. I don't even know what that is. Um, <laughs> Oh, look, it's clearly an, the image of God thing. It's like, if you put the letters on top of each other, it kind of looks like a person. See? Look, there's two legs and two arms and the head and the torso. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, in the commentaries, they disagree with each other. Let me explain God's name first, all right? Uh, so this is God's name, Yahweh. Uh, it's supposed to be how we pronounce it, I think. Um, when they wrote Hebrew, they just wrote it like that. Um, so the vowels... Um, they didn't have there. People just knew how to pronounce it. It wasn't part of their written language system. Uh, eventually, people started to forget how to pronounce it, and so the Hebrew nerds among them invented a, a vowel system. So you had the vowels to it, and people could remember how to pronounce it. Uh, and so all the uh, Hebrew nerds today, the Hebrew scholars, will tell us it's pronounced Yahweh, uh, is how you pronounce it. Uh, now, in the Old Testament, that's the proper name to God. Um, but some people are really bothered because uh, it doesn't... They don't translate it that way. So have a look at uh, your Bible there and look at verse, let's say, 15. It's all over the place. Um, it says, God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. You see that word Lord there that's in capitals? Um, that's the word Yahweh in Hebrew. Uh, they haven't translated it as a name because it's God's name, Yahweh. But they haven't translated it as a name. They've translated it as a title, Lord. And they put it in capitals so you know that it's the Yahweh word, and it's consistent. You'll see it Lord like that all through the Old Testament translation that we have here. Um, some people are bothered by that. Um, oh, you're supposed to know God by this name. Why, why don't we call him by his name? Uh, it's worth thinking about that for a sec. Here's uh, some stuff you won't probably remember, but I just want you to feel aware of how it works a little bit. Um, they, they said it Yahweh for centuries. Uh, two or three centuries before Jesus, um, people stopped saying Yahweh when they read the Old Testament out of reverence that it would have blaspheme God's name, and so they started substituting <coughs> the word Lord. And so when they came to translate the Old Testament Hebrew into a Greek that the people of the newer age, Greek standard language, will make an Old Testament translation in Greek, they translated Yahweh as Lord in Greek, which is kurios. And so now there's a tradition of whenever you see the word Yahweh in Hebrew, translate it into your receptor language as Lord. Uh, you make the capitals, and, and English has just, changed, has just continued that. It's a tradition of interpretation that we follow. Uh, it sounds like a silly convention though, doesn't it? Why don't we just use God's name, call him Yahweh? Here's why. Here's why it's a good idea. Here's why I thought it was worth going into this. Um, at the time of Jesus, they read the Old Testament in Greek. The Greek Old Testament they had was that one that translated Yahweh as Lord. Now, what is the basic confession of Christianity? What was the message of Christianity that went everywhere? Jesus is Lord. Lord. Changes the way you hear it, doesn't it? Because you've got to ask, like there's other lords as well, Lord can just be a master with some slaves or whatever. You've at least got to ask the question when you read, Jesus is Lord, what Lord do they mean? Is this Jesus, is he claiming to be the Lord of the Old Testament? Because a lot of passages he clearly is. So anyway, that's basically why we've done that. Um, the basic thing I want you to understand is whenever you see capital Lord in your Bible, uh, that means Yahweh, literally. It's just the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, what does the name mean? Because he's... Explaining it here, um, names are really interesting things in the Old Testament. They actually mean something about the person very often, uh, like where they're from, what the character is, what their achievements are. 
Um, we've already seen a couple in the book of Exodus. So come to uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. Just turn the page over and look how Moses was named. Pharaoh's daughter named him. When <coughs> the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and became a son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of water. Why I drew him out of water? Look at your footnote there, buddy. In Bible, Moses sounds like the Hebrew for drawer out. And so it's like, well, he was taken out of water, let's call him taken out of water. It sounds like a nice word. I guess. You have to be in that culture, I guess. Verse 22, look, Moses' son, they did the same thing. Zipporah, his wife, in Midian, gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, which basically means uh, I'm a foreigner or I'm an asylum seeker or something like that. Uh, and so it, it, it's, God's asking, when Moses says, what's your name? He's asking more than what's your label. He's asking, what's the name that tells me all about you? How do I define you with a word? And then God gives him, well, I am who I am. He just defies it. He's more than a label. You can't just go with one label. Well, here's what it, here's what it means. I just want to say a couple of things about what, I, what I've concluded I am, what I am means, uh, and how it helps us understand the book of Exodus. Um, first thing to say, it's not philosophy. People go into weird, Platonistic philosophy stuff about absolute being. Uh, that's not Jewish. Ignore it. Um, it's, it's a deliberately ambiguous thing to say. It's worth saying. Uh, in Hebrew, it can mean a bunch of things. And so it's like, it's a, it, it's a really weird phrase because you can just, it's got lots of meanings, probably. So it's worth saying that. Um, there's multiple interpretations of it. You just have to look at the context. So let's have a look at the context of this passage. What's just happened is Moses has said he can't do the job. Look at verse 11. Who am I, there's the I, who am I, I am, who am I am, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, well, I am be with you. See, it's actually assurance to Moses. Answer to all these concerns. I'm not big enough. I am. I'm not strong enough. I am. I'm not a good enough talker. I am. I can't achieve this. I am. I'm sufficient. God, it's about God's power and sufficiency to achieve his will through Moses, and he'll go with Moses. But it's also, this is really important, and I think this is a key thing. It's a circular statement that makes you go back to keep going, looking at God to find out more about what he's like. See, if you say, I am who I am, the only way you can find out more about me is by keep looking at me and see what I do and say. That's the point. You can actually translate it. I will be who I will be. So watch, listen, pay attention. I'm about to do spectacular things to introduce myself to the world. You want to get a picture of who I am? You can't sum that up with a name. What you need to do is watch my actions, listen to my words, and you'll know who I am. Gradually, you'll become more aware of who I am. Your God box will fill up with content, and you'll get to know who I am. So it's supposed to draw you into knowing God and wanting to know him more. And so throughout the whole Bible... God progressively reveals himself. He, gets, he introduces people more and more, gives us more information, so our God box gets more in it. And so he's given us a label. The God box is called Yahweh. There you go, there's a Yahweh box. That's, that's what they called him. Uh, and at the burning bush, they learn a bunch of stuff about God. Moses learned a bunch of stuff. This God is the Lord of creation and its forces. He's personal or relational. He's holy. He's the God of my ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he's learning new things. God is almighty and self-sufficient. He can do his will anywhere over any God. He's incomparable to all other things. He can't just be defined by, like, by a name like Chemosh can or like Baal can. He's self-defining. And therefore, you have to know him through his words and deeds in history. You have to watch him. You have to listen to him. And particularly now, with what he's about to do in Egypt, you better pay attention. 
And the rest of Exodus is about filling that God box, the Yahweh box, with more and more information and getting to know God. So just so we make sure we've got the point, what's Yahweh mean? If you want to ask you, uh, Yahweh means it's the open box that you're supposed to fill with content by watching God and listening to God. It means I will be who I will be. Watch me, listen to me, you'll get to know me. That's basically what I think it means. Uh, we can talk about that more later if you'd like. Uh, talk to me over coffee. Um, have a look at chapter 3, verse 15. goes on with a plan. Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you will call me from generation to generation, as they grow in their understanding of it. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I've promised to bring you up out of the misery of Egypt into the land of all those tribes, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. Let's take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, to Yahweh our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. And I love this here. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbour and every woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and clothing, which you'll put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. God is a conquering army for Israel. And they don't have soldiers defeating other soldiers and taking stuff. They, their plunderers are the women of Israel, the housewives of Israel, going up to the other housewives of Egypt and just saying, hey, I want that, you're taking it. Because God has so defeated them. That's where we're heading Chapter 4, God gives it, uh, Moses a bunch of signs so that he can uh, introduce himself to Pharaoh and to uh, his fellow kinsmen, so that hopefully they'll listen to him. Very impressive signs, turning your staff into a snake, um, being able to get your hand, throw it in your shirt, it comes out leprous, put it back in, it comes out clean. Uh, having a bucket, filling it with water, throwing it on the ground, it turns into blood. I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> I'm, that's pretty impressive stuff. And when you start taking water out of the Nile, the territory of the Egyptian god Happy, and you can take it out and turn it into blood, you just defile this territory. And clearly this god's better than Happy, whoever that false god is. And Moses just makes excuse after excuse. Look at verse 10, verse chapter 4. Pardon me, servant Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Now I reckon if I got... Just about anyone in this room to do these miracles here and say, go before this great leader and do these miracles. I reckon most of us would do it if you've actually tried the miracles out, you know they work. Moses isn't up for it. In fact, if you're worried, you think you can't ever tell another person about Jesus, I reckon if Moses was in this room, he would say, get Stuart to do it. <laughs> Seriously, he's, he's not a hero, he's a coward. Like he becomes a hero, he obeys God, but... You just, we've just got to get the mindset out of our head that these guys are amazing somehow. Um, they're very, very ordinary people. And if God can do stuff through Moses, well, he can certainly do stuff through you. He's got to take this staff with you. Go down to verse 17. Take this staff in your hand. You can perform the signs with it. Uh, the staff that he doesn't need anymore because he's no longer going to be a shepherd is the sign of the good shepherd. It's going to be the extra character in the, the saga because... That staff's going to be raised high in view of everyone 
as God applies his power to crush the Egyptians and save his people. So Moses leaves, gets permission from his, uh, goes back to Jethro and Midian, gets permission to leave, better check that his Israelites are still doing okay, let's go, Jethro lets him go, heads back up to Egypt, uh, and he arrives, and, he, and, and they uh, meet with the elders, they show him the miracles, the elders go, wow, this is great, and they bow down and worship, this stuff's going to happen, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, they give their speech, and Pharaoh's answers in chapter 5, let's move forward to chapter 5. Uh, they, they, they tell him, uh, let my people go so that they may hold a festival, festival to me in the wilderness. And here's what Pharaoh said. Who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Um, it's possible that Pharaoh had heard Yahweh's name. What he's saying is, I don't care. My Yahweh box has nothing in it that I should care about. Like, unless I've got the God of the slaves, he doesn't even have any land. He doesn't even have an army. Why should I care what Yahweh wants? Uh, he's a nothing God. And so he doesn't listen. Moses tries again. Uh, maybe you didn't hear me clearly. Look at verse 3. Then he says, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. This is a real God. This is no nonsense stuff. You better take, you better take care of it. Listen up. This is for real. And Pharaoh's response is out of contempt. Look, if you've got enough time to worry about this stuff, listen to these fools from Midian, then clearly you're not working hard enough. Let's double the workload. Uh, and that's uh, astonishingly cruel. Uh, we're probably, many of us, so used to this story, we don't even know what this slave room looked like. It was horrible. Uh, they made bricks, uh, which meant spending the whole day packing wet clay and straw into brick moulds, which is excruciating hard work for long hours. And they had a quota to keep, so you have to go at a certain pace. And other slaves, often kids, carried the rows and rows of wet bricks on their heads and put them out in the sun to dry. And then you take them to this big kiln fortress building, uh, which is absolutely horrible to be in, apparently. It's just, you know, like an underworld with grey dust and soot everywhere. And uh, I've got a quote here. It says, This is one of the worst jobs in an operation to find by awful jobs. It's excruciatingly hot, dirty and sticky. Workers covered with charcoal dust that mixes with the dust of clay and dirt until sweat, smoke, skin begins to harden and crack. And they just spend hours and days and weeks and years and decades doing that endlessly. Um, and what they had is straw. You, you, you put it in the brick and it makes the bricks not shrink and it makes it a bit easier to mould the bricks. And my parents says, okay, we'll give you straw. Is that mine? It's probably the school. Oh, it's gone. Good. Um, Ferris says, look, you're not working hard enough. Go get your own straw. And now half the slaves are going around Egypt looking for anything that resembles straw so they can make bricks properly. Uh, it is a ridiculous, un you just can't do it. You can't sustain that kind of labour. But Pharaoh's plan is very carefully calculated to set up Israel against Moses and Aaron and whatever plans this Yahweh God has. Uh, have a look at verse 10 there. It says, Then the slave drivers and the overseers, they went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. Notice the difference? God, this is what God, Yahweh says. Now we're listening to what Pharaoh says. The two have different plans for Israel. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw, wherever you can find it. Your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Pick and complete the work required of you for each day, just as you did when you had straw. Ridiculous. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed. They beat up the overseers, not the slaves, the overseers, and said, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? 
Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told, Make bricks. Your servants have been beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy. That's where you are, lazy. That's why I keep saying, Let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Now get to work. You'll not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Pharaoh is a brilliant politician. He knows how to play people against each other. Because the next thing that happens is the overseers leave the room and go and face their failed union reps, Moses and Aaron, and say, what the heck are you doing? May God curse you for what you've done here. And suddenly Israel hates Moses and Aaron, the representatives of the God who's driving that way, and they don't want to listen to any plan. And Moses uh, is giving up. Come down to verse 22. Stopwatch. That's all right. <laughs> Thank you, Kara. Come to verse 22. And Moses is giving up. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name. In your name, we're growing it loud. He's brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Foreman say, Moses, you're, you're to blame. Moses says, God, you're to blame. Even Moses is against God. So the situation's really bad. Pharaoh's against the people. Israel is against uh, God. Pharaoh's against God. Even Moses is against God now. Things appear really, really awful. Uh, they couldn't be less appropriate for God being about to save Israel, but that's the thing. They are exactly where God wants them to be. Exactly. This is the perfect situation for God to save Israel. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 1, because that's what he says. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he'll let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he'll drive them out of his country. The situation is such that everybody involved is against God. It's as hard as it can be for God to succeed here. <coughs> Even Moses is against him and say, I can't speak, I can't do this, I'm giving up. And it's absolutely perfect. Now is the time of salvation. Because all through the Bible, salvation belongs to God alone. Human beings don't contribute at all, ever. God achieves salvation in every sense, so that people can go free. And nobody gets credit except for him. And so, we continue what uh, God said to Moses, verse 2. God said to Moses, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. See, there's a new thing that's going to be added to the God box. It's so fundamental that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they just didn't know it yet. What's that? Well, I established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the Israelites, who the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you up from the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. You will add that new idea to your God box. Did you catch the new idea in verse 6? I will bring you out the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll free you. I will redeem you. It's so basic to us. Um, they didn't have this idea in the God box yet. God is saviour. It's a new thought. <laughs> this is the fundamental moment where you realise the God of the universe doesn't just sit back and watch whatever people do. The God of the universe wills to save people. So basic to who he is. And Israel, for the first time, people for the first time really, are going to discover that this God is Saviour, Deliverer, Redeemer. Uh, but that is coming up 
uh, Stuart uh, next week and next coming weeks, we found out more about that. But God doesn't stop uh, introducing himself there. We're talking about filling our God box with content. Uh, let me just add a couple more things. What I want you to look for as we do our series on Exodus, notice when God says, my name, know my name, know more about my name. He talks about um, what it means to honour God's name, the Ten Commandments. He talks about his name when he rescues them to the sea, being a great warrior, fighting on their behalf. Moses in the Mount of Sinai, when we get there in chapter 33, will say, tell me, let me see your glory, tell me your name. And God says, I'll tell you my name. Tells them more things to the God box. Gracious, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to his people, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but never leaving the guilty unpunished. Feeling more and more content, so you get to know God better gradually, as you watch him, as you listen to him. But it's nothing compared to the big step up in knowing God when Jesus arrives. Um, friends, I just want to show you a couple of things from the Gospel of John uh, to finish off today. If you turn to the Gospel of John, turn to chapter 17, page 1084, if you've got the uh, Pew Bible there. Jesus is the new location where you get to know God. John chapter 17, verse 11. Uh, lots of the Exodus themes in John. You read it, you'll keep on hearing about signs, you'll hear about the name of God and Jesus revealing him, that sort of thing. Um, it's very Exodus-ish, if that's a word. Uh, chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus is praying about his disciples and he says, I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we, we are one. What he's saying is, Jesus is the place where the name of God is fully known. Jesus introduces us to God. We're fully, it's fully known to God. The name of God, the name Yahweh, rests on Jesus, and that's where you fully get to know God properly. Jesus wants to make it explicit in certain places. You've just got to see this in chapter 8. Turn back, backwards to chapter 8, page 1073. Jesus could have started his ministry with words, I am who I am. Watch and see, watch and listen to my deeds, my words. Uh, he did mention it at some point. Uh, chapter 8, verse 56. Listen to what he says. To the Jews, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, he was glad. But you're not 50 years old, listen to him. You've seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, not I existed, literally, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, presumably that he's a blasphemer, and so Jesus hid, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why are they trying to stone him? It's so obvious, isn't it? That God of Exodus is me. You get to know him in me, is what Jesus is saying. And all through uh, John's Gospel, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me if you want to know who God is. It's that full revelation, fully known in Jesus, and eventually you've just got to relabel a box. The Yahweh box, the God box, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you get such a fuller knowledge of who God is. Now, friends, if you've got God's name right, uh, I don't care if you call God Yahweh or not. I don't think that's the point. Uh, if you call God Yahweh and just call him Yahweh, in fact, I think that's bad, because you have a better name to call God, and that name is Father. That's what Jesus came and introduced his father to us as. He says, Yahweh is your father now. You're adopted into his family in Jesus. Uh, we know God at a far deeper level than the patriarchs, than Moses. It just keeps getting bigger. 
and one day in heaven in glory will know him better again. But you won't figure that out. You won't figure out God. You have to keep coming to God and letting him add stuff to your God box and take stuff out that's wrong. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that you uh, aren't uh, just a creator who vaguely stands back and, and watches and does nothing. Thank you that really central to who you are is that you're the saviour, God. Thank you that you will to save Israel uh, through uh, Moses and the great acts we'll see in the coming days. And uh, thank you that there's so much to know about you in that book. We pray we'd be attentive to it. We pray that you help us to watch your deeds and listen to your words and know you better. But above all, Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in him we're adopted into your family, that we see you in a way that Moses just didn't yet. Uh, and we thank you so much for the privilege we have of knowing you so deeply. Please help us to be attentive to our Bibles and to explain clearly to our friends who Jesus is. And uh, we pray that we'd be able to help other people remove stuff from the God box that doesn't belong there and to know you truly, to know Jesus truly and to find salvation in his name.